0: Welcome to the Coach Fury Podcast. This is where fitness and geekdom collide. It's time to live long, be strong, and die mighty. Hey everybody, welcome to episode 59 of the Coach Fury Podcast. Uh, Today, it is a Fury on Fury episode, and there's a reason behind it. It's because I got some sort of geek-induced virus at New York Comic Con last weekend when I was hanging out with my friend and Films of Fury Pods. Pod Squad member Jen Bartholomeo. and it was a great time in which I'll talk about, but I started with a little cold and it kicked my ass, so this week was supposed to be New York hardcore music staple, really good guy Mike Dijon from, uh, man, he's been in a lot, Breakdown, Crown of Thorns, Synob, currently in King's Bounty and playing with the Cro-Mags, so I apologize to Mike, we tried to do this call twice and I just, every day I thought I was going to be better, I felt like crap. So uh, my apologies, Mike. Mike is going to be the next week's guest on the show. Things going on in the world of Fury. Uh, We're going to talk about this more detail in the show, but I just had a great time helping out Josh Hankin at uh, DVRT Restoration and DVRT Level 1 over at um, Body Space Fitness in Union Square. Thanks, Kelvin, for having us over there. And that was the last of my courses in the States for the year. So in a a little bit, about a week and a half, I'm flying out to Japan and Taiwan to teach a bunch for the RKC for original strength and to do a a, a sort of trial version of my Indian clubs workshop, which I'm really excited about. So next week I'm going to try to hit you with a few episodes so that we're covered while I'm gone. So stay tuned for possibly multiple episodes getting delivered at once. Hopefully I can make that happen and, uh, and Glenn can do the artwork. I haven't talked to Glenn about that. Um, I will have by the time you listen to this. Anyway, so that's what's going on in the World of Fury. Uh, coming up in January, January 13th, Original Strength at MFF Bowery. Then the RKC is coming March 2nd and 3rd, Momentum Fitness. And the early bird for that ends on October 19th. So you can save $200 on that if you sign up by October 19th. So get on there. We got a good crew forming. I'm really excited to teach that. I haven't taught an RKC in New York this year. And I'm just pump to let it rip at that one and then we're doing an hkc so if you're not quite ready for the rkc or maybe you're training some you know entry-level kettlebells i shouldn't even say entry-level kettlebells like the staples the swing the gobble squat and the get up come to the hkc at mff bowery on march 10th that's the following weekend from the rkc uh that is the first course i ever took and and it just has helped me tremendously. So check that stuff out. There is more stuff in line. We're looking at bringing DVRT back out to the Boston area. We're going to be bringing DVRT and OS out to Tulsa, Oklahoma, to Dustin spot. And if you're interested in hosting, uh, let me know. Oh, also exciting news is I found out really... Uh, short notice last week that I'm gonna be teaching in Taiwan for the Taiwan RKC and there's still spots for that. So in December, I'm gonna be doing a Taiwan RKC and, uh, sorry, HKC first on December 19th and then the RKC on the 20th and the 21st. So uh, man, get to hang out a lot in Asia. I like literally can't believe this is happening. And for dates and all of that stuff, Check out CoachFury.com. And while you're at it, try to like uh, drop a rating on this show if you dig it, if you've listened to two or three episodes and keep listening or learn something from it or try to work out. Go on ye old iTunes and hit uh, a review or please subscribe. The algorithms are weird. I noticed yesterday I searched my own podcast on iTunes, literally directly putting in Coach Fury podcast and episodes show up, but the actual homepage for the show didn't. So that was kind of creepy. I had to like scroll through. It wasn't the first thing. So please check that out and uh, just take a moment to hit some five-star love action. Yeah, cool. So let's talk about some stuff that's been going on. There's been a lot. And I had posted up on Facebook uh, if anybody had a topic to talk about. So Mark and uh, William, I got you today. But there's been a, a lot going on. So I mentioned New York Comic Con. Uh, New York Comic Con, I've only missed two and a half. And by two and a half, I was out of town teaching where I to to actually the DVRT Master Trainer Summits twice for two of them. Uh, thanks, Josh. That was the last chance I had to meet the original Godzilla actor before he passed away. But I still love you. And the first year, me and some friends went and it oversold. It sold out. So we couldn't get in. So I count that we went because we showed up. And for those that like if you didn't know, like we had Comic Cons all the time in the city and you just... They were never anything you'd be in fear of selling out. So we got shut out, but we had a good time drinking at a really sketchy dive bar. Um, So I still sort of count that. It was a great day, but we didn't get in. Um, New York Comic Con's a weird one for me. I always have a good time, but it's largely based on who I'm hanging out with. You know, so Jen and I walked around uh, and I actually had one thing in my head that I wanted to get uh, if I could see it and man, we found it in perfect condition about 20 to 30 minutes in like two or three aisles in from uh looking around and that was a 1982 gi joe vamp jeep with the driver clutch now the clutch figure is an 83 figure because how do i know that guys this this is nerdy because the original original 82 gi joes had straight arms which were cool enough as they are but in 83 when they went in wave two they added the swivel arm and for me, aside from the vehicles, that posable arm is what, in my opinion, and knees makes GI Joes the best action figures that were ever created. Because not only did they make a lot of amazing vehicles, they were super mobile, so you could actually play with them. It's one of the things that I hated about He-Man figures and I hated about Transformers is Transformers, like the joints moved whatever allowed them to get into position, Um but then you, it was like, who cares? So it's a robot with limited mobility. And then it's a car that I can drive around. That just wasn't it for me. But GI Joes, they were great. So I've got this amazing, perfect condition, uh, or near perfect condition, all the parts, GI Joe, 1982 vamp Jeep with clutch. And, uh, it was as a kid, I only really was in, I was never into cars other than two. And that would be the Trans Am and Smokey and the Bandit, Bandit, uh, and this Jeep, so I was stoked to get it, and it sort of spurred a light on where I was like looking at my Godzilla shelves, which were getting quite filled, and I'm like, I have a lot of Godzillas, and I was like, why haven't I been getting any GI Joe? So I actually started selling off Godzillas for a few things to uh, help support the cause of this show, to help pay some bills. Uh, but I did put some of the money from selling a bunch of them into buying some vintage GI Joes because it's really crazy. I was holding this Jeep that from 1982. Now folks, I was 10, right? Nine or 10 when this thing came out and the toy looks new. It's amazing. So anyway, I got a few other little pieces. So if you watch the podcast, Instagram thing, Instagram profile, you'll start to see some pictures of some of the collection. And we did because I sold off a bunch of the Godzillas. Don't worry, there's still a lot. You wouldn't come in here and go like, oh, Fury sold off Godzillas. Don't worry. Um, But you, you you you'll see like we've set stuff up a little differently um i've also been selling uh friends of mine from like the quiet man days of visual effects uh, i was big into buying lord of the rings action figures and they've been sitting at my mom's house and i just sold those um on ebay although he's never going to listen to the show man the buyer's a pain in the ass he's like can i when can i pay you i want to wait for a sale and i'm like uh pay me now and he keeps talking about how expensive they were i'm like it's 95 figures and you bought them and you didn't need to buy them so ebay is always a weird one um for all the people that did buy off my godzilla groups which was mostly my friends in the godzilla groups uh that i've only known through facebook yes folks this is a nerdy conversation uh thank you for buying my godzilla toys and i'm always excited that they end up at homes of people that will love them Uh, So yeah, Comic-Con was great. Didn't see a a bunch of like new stuff. The costumes, the cosplay is always awesome. Hanging out with people is always awesome. Getting the Comic-Con virus was horrible. Um, But you know, it's a weird thing. Seeing it so big and about things that were new. And for me and my friends, when we would go through Comic-Cons back in the day, it was always about actually things that were old. Old comic books, filling in gaps in your collection, old toys you know, collectibles, weird stuff. And now it's all about like, this is what's coming out this year. And I like the movie trailer stuff and I like seeing previews of action figures that might be coming out. But for the most part, a lot of that vintage thing is gone and it's it's a bummer. Uh, and over the years, I've sort of gotten more into like Artist Alley, which I didn't get to hit up. I went to go to see G.I. Joe artist Larry Hama and he was eating a sandwich and I didn't want to bother him. So I, I, I didn't get a print this year, but I'm definitely hitting him up on the next one. But they just get so crowded, so wall-to-wall um, that that does bother me. It's kind of like, it's always great to be like, ah, oh, my people. And then you're like, I don't like being surrounded by my people in that way. But, uh, you know, a couple of beers helps, and it was just fun. It's really it is about the company and just like letting it all soak in all the visual glory of what it is. Um, so Comic-Con was great, but my, my really my only purchase was uh, the G.I. Joe Vamp. I brought home a Star Wars Resistance poster that was free for for the kids' room, and uh, I got a Mandy poster. If you haven't seen the Nick Cage movie Mandy, it is a treat. Now, by treat, you have to be in super fucked up violent movie mode. Uh, Being a metalhead from the 80s certainly helps, and in a sort of like psychedelics, uh, not that I take them, but like that type of like 80s rock art. Uh, and if you like Nick Cage, when he's both not only subtle, but then when he goes into batshit crazy Nick Cage mode, uh, I highly recommend this movie, Mandy. It, it really stood out. It was fun. We ended up actually not renting it. We bought it. So I met a guy from the, um, production company of that. So I got a poster for that. Uh, and that was really it. You know, we kind of, I kind of kept it mellow. Uh, I'm trying not to just spend money for the sake of spending money because I'm, you know, more and more, I'm like, I could put my money in better places than buying toys. But don't worry, I'm still buying toys. Things haven't changed that much. Uh, Another nerdy comic news and whatnot. uh, Man, Venom came out. And I'm going to be honest, I didn't have high hopes for Venom. uh, But I do love Tom Hardy. So I was excited just to see what they did. And Ruben Fleischer, the director, he was the dude who did Zombieland. And he's done some, like, mixed stuff since then. But Zombieland is, like, damn near perfect movie. So I was excited to see that. And, sorry, my Facebook just was dinging. So that was a, I took the kids to see Venom. And, you know, it was fun. I think it's very hard now. I think, unfortunately, with the previous Spider-Man movies and with how the X-Men movies have been in a decline, uh, I think anything other than the main Marvel movies through Disney the Paul Feige ones, I think it's really hard to just come with an open mind and expect one of those things to be great. It's just Marvel has such a high level of dominance that, you know, Venom knowing that Spider-Man's not going to be in it and being like from a different production company just feels a little weird. But it was fun. You know, the kids dug it. Uh, A couple of parts were disturbing for my son, Ben. and Tom Hardy, like plays a different type of Tom Hardy than I've seen him do. So I, I enjoyed it. It's not one I'm gonna rush out to see again. But I think it's cool when a movie gets like crap reviews and does really well just because we're not taking it as seriously as as a lot of us do. And I tend to take this stuff too seriously, but then if you remove it, we're like talking about things based on kids books uh, or adult kids' books. You know what I mean? I don't mean porno. I mean comic books with a little bit more violence and adult themes. Uh, so that was cool Uh, you know check it out or wait for home you know it's made enough money where i don't think you have to worry about it it sets up the potential for a a, a sequel with uh, an actor that i just adore more and more and that's woody harrelson so um check it out if you want to if not let's talk about a little bit about binge watching tv so john westcott member of the fury crew real estate guru said I should check out the TV show Fargo. And my gosh, folks, if you haven't been checking out Fargo, uh, do yourself a favor and at least force yourself to sit through three episodes of season one. And every season, it's like a different story. And there's some overlap, not much. Um, But man, Billy Bob Thornton alone, just to see him in season one makes that worth worth your time and investment. Really dug watching Fargo. And... Kim and I have started watching Ozark, and I think she sort of fell out of it. But I've been really digging that, and I think it's real cool to see that uh, Jason Bateman not only does he crush it in comedy, but he really crushes it on the drama side. But I was also surprised to see that he's been directing those. So uh, that's what's been going on in the world of Fury in terms of like just like movies and whatnot. Um, didn't get to do much, and I'm going to be heading out, you know, as I mentioned, to Japan and stuff coming up. So. Uh, I don't think I'm going to get to too much. We really want to get out and see Halloween before I travel. That's probably the next and last one before before the new year hits, which is crazy to think about that, right? Um, Let's talk a little bit about training stuff that's been going on. Um, So I just assisted with uh, my friends uh, James and Michelle, uh, and we assisted Josh Hankin at a DVRT restoration course and a DVRT level one certification. And DVRT is dynamic variable resistance training. And it's really cool always to step back and just to help out and watch and learn from some, from, you know, that saying you always have to surround yourself with people that are better than you. And Hankin is certainly one of those cats that it's gonna be hard to put him in a room of coaches and him not be the smartest person in the room, but he doesn't present himself or speak in that way. So it's, uh, I always come along with a lot of takeaways and I don't mean that as a sales ad for DVRT. I mean, you guys know I teach for them already, but it's just, I think if you don't have somebody that you can look up to or learn from or approach or ask questions from a guy like Josh Hankin, uh, you should find somebody one of the big takeaways from the course is now that I've taught a bunch of workshops over time and, and met a lot of people is you start to see the quality of not just the coaches coming in, but the facilities they work for. And it shows in, in not only how the attendees move, but also in the questions they ask. And what I mean is this, so if it, it, it like for this was an, a great example between restoration and uh, level one. I had my friend, uh, Nicole Newbold from Catskill. Uh, Man, Catskill Kettlebells. Sorry, as the phone just rang. Catskill Kettlebells, my friend Roger Hall's place. And I've just met people through Roger's place. Like Patty is one of them. Um, Mabel. And then I met, you know, Nicole showed up and I met his new trainer, Missy. And, you know, like Roger knows how to find really wonderful people that become great coaches. Now, I don't know the histories of when they sign up and how much experience they have up, but you know, Missy and Nicole, there's a clean and press test in DVRT that is very challenging. And man, I don't know if I've seen somebody crush it with uh, as effectively as Missy did in particular, but um, you start to see how these people foster him, right? Uh, Body Space Fitness, Kelvin's place, that house, you start to see that his staff is usually very, very, very on point. And even you know when he gets new trainers come in because that's you know that's what happens sometimes there's turnover or we grow. Um, there's like a level of quality within his trainers, but even if they know they're on the learning scale, they're very open-minded and not closing down. So they'll ask questions, and they know that like an answer might not mean that something they've been previously told is wrong, but it's a different perspective. So. I think that's a really cool thing. And and, oh, and I should say, uh, clearly, results-driven. My buddy Mike Tool's place and Ed McKay's place, right? Um, Mike's mom, Violet, was there. She's like a hero on many levels. And uh, Jenna was there. And I've just known and gotten to work with Mike for a while now through courses and online training. And you just see that there's a level of humanity and caring that comes out of that place. Now... I'll also work with trainers outside or you meet some people that are a little more isolated because they feel like they're not supported by their companies. And I'm not talking big boxes, you know, I'm talking more like, you know, smaller studios that they're not supported or that they're being, you know, putting unfair demands or challenges on that probably aren't within the scope of what they should be doing as a trainer. And I think part of that comes from the idea of what a trainer is supposed to do is really vast now. It should be. It used to be like stay good at training people, stay on top of your education at training people, and now it's like, um, do what we do, sell the sessions, and selling the sessions is always part of that. I shouldn't say, but do what we do, keep your sales up, um, you know, don't rock the boat, and just don't bother us. You know, oh, and also like the whole social media aspect of like, it's almost like a job requirement to be a social media marketer now. And I just, oof, that fucking sucks. Um, If you're into it, you're into it. If you're not, you're not. And I think that puts a lot of people on edge that they feel really alone and isolated. And then you get to one of these courses and you get to meet people. So I know there's like places that have like MFF, wonderful in services, you know, uh, the strength fraction guys at uh, Beyond Sports Performance. They're always, going to have beyond strength and performance. Sorry, guys, BSP Nova. Um, wonderful in-services, but I think it's really also important that people get to go out and meet people, that they go out and they, they, you know, they interact and partner up with people that aren't their friends that they came in with and get perspectives just to know where you are and where you're alone because you know Josh and I eh, and, and, and James at lunch yesterday, James Newman, and then again a little bit more at dinner, Um, We were talking, and a lot of what we deal with as trainers, especially because of social media, is this false sense of success or happiness. And this has come up on the show a lot, but, you know, uh, everyone claims online training is some amazing path to income. Folks, I really don't think people are making a ton of money or as many people as you think are making a lot of money or even a little money online training. For most of us that work at a gym in a, a, maybe not in a big town, but even in a big town, you're, unless you manage to break through on a high level of social media, your online training clients are most likely going to be clients that moved or can't afford the gym anymore and your gym doesn't have a program already set up to come in, it's not gonna be like a big reach where all of a sudden you have 100 people because you signed up for one of these online hosting services. You know, uh, like I've said on this show, and it's not a sales thing, uh, I'd like to keep the Fury crew, my online Die Mighty online crew, between eight and 15 people. When I go above 15 people, I don't like the work. now. I'm often not pinning at 15. Like I think I have about like 12 or 13 people right now. So when people ask me questions about how successful my online program is, like I charge an X amount and this is where I cap it. So there is a self-imposed ceiling on it and it's good money. And if I didn't live in an expensive neighborhood, you know, it would clearly pay my rent, but it's still a lot of work. And I think a lot of people are making it seem easy to do online training. Um, And that somehow it's super easy to do everywhere. And I was misled by that. And I think there's a lot of people trying to act as if they're making a lot of money or falsely representing that they're making a lot of money. Um, Because now the next thing now that's happening is like not only does everybody do online training, but now people are trying to promote their own let me help you do better at online training training. Right. So folks, just be like real careful about that and don't get so, I guess the focus is is I'm not telling you, you know, to start calling people liars or look for charlatans, but just like have a better self-worth of yourself within this business Uh, because you're going to look at your friends that are posting content all the day and they might have like a ton of likes or something, but that doesn't mean that they're making a dollar more than you. If you can just get your sessions in wherever you're at and, you know, Climb the ladder a bit, whatever that might be. If you're in a tier system or a management thing, like that's a more honest view. Uh, There's a lot of talk about business marketing and social media with business marketing. And, you know, one of the things that I've talked about on this show, it really came up with the Becky Cody episode. Thank you, Becky. Um, And then Josh and I were talking about it. It's like, we don't do enough local, just person-to-person, business-to-business networking. Usually we're trying to fish people in with hashtags and Facebook marketing or Instagram marketing. And content, and who knows if that content's necessarily connecting. Now, make content. like One of the ways, if you want to do online training or get clients, is to have a bigger public image. But I don't know if just Instagram posts alone is going to do that. And what I mean by this is uh, the only way that I get online clients is uh, a few of them are from gyms that I've worked at. But the most of them are from people that met me through workshops or certifications that I've either assisted at or taught at. So, again, going to courses is a way to potentially expand your network and expand your reach. And in that context, people would see, oh, like Fury was very helpful, or he seemed to know what he was doing. And I'm sure some people are like, Fury didn't know what the fuck he was doing. But for the most part, I started to build credibility and a little bit of a name first in Kettlebells and then DVRT, and only because. I had more chances to help out in Kettlebells because just there were more courses coming around. And and then writing back that up, you know, like having a few good blogs, but people are already starting to see my name in pictures or something. And I don't mean magazines. I mean, we're talking small scale folks, super small scale. And then people would like, you know, hey, I need help with the snatch test or the clean and press test. And, or, you know, they came and took a workshop and want to learn more. I want to prep for something or whatever. And that's where it starts. So I, I realized That I'm in a unique ability that like I I can meet more trainers at more gyms and more enthusiasts, you know, throughout the States or the world. Uh, Most of them, I think everybody that I train currently is in in the United. Yeah, everyone I currently train is in the United States. It hasn't always been the case. Um, You know, think about that if you're thinking about online training. But I also say this this is with a, helping out with josh especially at the dvrt level one was really good now i've taught i don't know almost 10 level one certifications myself now or co-taught with mike james newman and or with josh as a as a, as a lead instructor as the master instructor and you know uh, james and i will say like the first time i taught one i i led the first non-hankin dvrt cert at catalyst and we were both kind of freaking out like, wow, this is something we've had the baby and we're about to run with it and hope we don't like, you know, drop the baby or rattle the baby. And every year, you know, one of the things as a presenter, like you try to get better at how you're delivering, how you're connecting with your audience, how you're speaking, how you're making the curriculum come loud and clear. And every year I feel more confident and I feel better. Never perfect, but there's definitely a level of competency because you've done it nine or 10 times, right? It's just like anything, like you're putting the reps in and I'm fortunate that I, you know, I don't mean this in a bragging way, I really don't, but that since I get to teach workshops for OS and, um, you know, the RKC, HKC as well, I get a lot of practice being in front of rooms. So, you know, the curriculums I can get sharper at, but I have a lot of practice in terms of, you know, relating to people and queuing and whatnot, problem solving and connecting. And you know, it was really great to see going through this level one that like that, you know, I think the disparity in terms of like some of the, I don't want to say big words or not, but I really kind of came into my own a bit in a different level and that was a a good feeling. This was a little sidetracked, but you got to get out there and you got to do it. So two things I guess this is dwindling on. This is a little bit of rambling. If you're looking into online training as like a safe all or like a a real career thing, uh, know that it's a lot harder than it is and I think a lot of us are being misled. Um, But if you want to do it and like, look, two or three clients, if you're charging, you know, one hundred and fifty to two hundred and fifty bucks a month. Um, you know that's some extra cheese. That's not bad. That'll pay some bills. Take your uh, take your significant other out. Your partner out. You know, go wild. Um, buy some vintage GI Joe toys, or buy one for your man Fury. Um, but the idea of it becoming like a six figure business, I think, is pretty pretty bullshit for most people. Um, for the presenter track. Let's talk about this. The other thing with assisting and leadership roles that I get asked a lot is, you know, how do you get a leadership role? And some groups are very structured. Uh, Original strength is very structured. And it's kind of wonderful that it is. There's like a chain of uh, levels of certification and assistant duties and, and applications that could lead you to. Now, there's no guarantee you'll be an instructor, but there's a process, you know, that goes through that. The RKC and DVRT, it's a little looser. It's, uh, the RKC, you have to be a uh, level two certified and you know it shows if you help out a lot, help support and bring people to workshops or certs, if you write, that helps. Um, and just prove that you're a supporter of the brand. DVRT land, sort of that, go through the certs and just show that you're really passionate about the brand. Now here's what happens, and this isn't meant to be a judgment on anybody, this is meant to actually help with expectations. Uh, it is very rarely that I am assigned, uh, a workshop or a certification, meaning that like one of the owners of these systems calls me up and says, can you go here and go? It does happen, but the majority, 90% of what I do, um, somebody reaches out either through a referral from a friend of a friend from another place. You know, I sent like, I have to give Artemis Scandalides who's been on the show, major props, uh, you know, uh, taught, DVRT at uh, level one and two at iron body at Artemis's place and her friend Tina Morin over at MSC strength reached out. Hey, I want to learn more of that. Artemis says, go check in with fury. And now Tina has somebody else reached out to Tina about DVRT and Tina says, you know, go check in with fury. So again, it's about getting out there, but so people are reaching out and then I help set that up or it just happens to be in like New York and I'm like, Hey Mark, Do you have this month free that I can rent, you know, uh, not rent, but that I can use the facility, Bowery, to to host a workshop? We're due for one. I think a lot of us think, like people when they get leadership roles, that like it's just going to be kind of like online training. Like you're just going to keep getting assigned certifications and stuff. And my advice for this is like don't expect that. Be super proactive in setting up your stuff. When Phil Ross was on the show a couple episodes ago, guys like Phil Ross – Mike Krifka, Phil Scarito, John Ingham, they are super good at setting up and being proactive and making things happen. And you know, it it helps not only build workshops, but build awareness of the brand and them. And uh, it's a really good way to be because if you sit and wait, like anything, it's just, you know, there's no guarantees and it doesn't necessarily show anyone that you're driven. Especially if like you kind of you're not teaching workshops and you're not putting out content, you kind of have a title that you might be leveraging, you know, in your home business. Like I am X Grand Pooh Bah Master Instructor, Uh, or but like you know, again, that sounds good on a business card, but it, it doesn't necessarily mean much to somebody that might come into your business, right? Like you work to come and train with you one on one. Like if they're not a kettlebell instructor, not a lot of people care that I'm a master RKC. If they're not in the world of it, they care that I know how to teach them kettlebells safely. The idea of what a master is is like it might sound cool to say like, "Oh, my coach is a master RKC. But it's also more about like, oh, my coach is just really good at teaching me. My back doesn't hurt when I do this stuff. So the money that, just like with online training, the money that you might get from, you know teaching workshops and certifications, it's probably less than you think. Now it's a big part of my business. I don't want to get you know. I don't want to say like there's not money to be had there. I'm very proactive at it. It's a big chunk of my my annual income, but you could be just a very successful trainer at a crunch. And make as much money as some of these kind of names that are teaching workshops because you know workshops. Uh, it's getting harder to get big crowds. Because um, there's just a lot of content out there, you have to pay for your expenses. Sometimes you're paying for, you know, uh, renting a facility or something to do it. Um, and I'm saying it, you know, hour to hour, it pays well. But when you look at like just having a great week at the studio, you know, so Japan's going to be amazing. It's going to be amazing, but it's two weeks away from work at home too. So whatever I'm making there, I always have to balance in what I'm not making from home. Not just finances, but also the emotional toll you know, that you might have, like, it sucks when I miss my kids. Um, you know, I just happen to particularly love Japan. So it's like a different, uh, thing for me and I do love teaching. So there's that, like, it's exciting for me, even though, you know, now it, between Japan and then Taiwan coming up, like that is four days of straight travel basically, um, happening. So for trainers with expectations, like just start small, But I I will say on either front, before you worry about being a, a leadership role in a group or being some sort of online coach, just get good at coaching people and your own understanding and application of the material. I think that's like the thing. And that comes up as a common thread with a lot of these guests is like, we just don't understand like... Uh, you know, there's five certs coming up in a six-week period. We're going to nail them all. Well, then how do you practice it all? You're not. You're just not. You might practice a couple of drills. Application leads to mastery and that's probably the best way to become a leadership in a role if you really believe in it is to like actually use it, practice it, own it, communicate it. Anyway, I hope that helps. It's not meant to sound as a downer. I just think a lot of the times we're just being misled as to what this is because we see fancy titles and Everyone looks so happy, but it's a ton of work. It's a ton of work, and I am happy. I don't want you to think I'm miserable. I just realized that might sound like Fury is really sad. But, like, guys, I'm not rolling in money. I live in a very expensive neighborhood. Um, you know, I, I went out on my own a year and a half ago, uh, training folks out of my, uh, a.k.a. the living room, speakeasy of strength, Fury Industries, is, um, creates its own challenges, but it also makes it special. You know, the people that come here love training here, but it's hard to get a lot of people in. It's a way slower build than if I had a storefront. But a storefront doesn't guarantee anything either. Just kind of gives more uh, awareness and accessibility, but it also has a ton of overhead, right? So with all of these things, whether it's being a leadership role or owning a business or blah, 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 just know um, it's a lot harder, a lot more work than it is. And you really want to have your your heart behind it um, so you're not half-assing it. And I'm going to move off of that. So if I go into Facebook land, uh, William wanted to know a little bit about the Fury story. And I, I think we'll, we'll, we'll just go on for this if nobody's heard sort of the Fury story. Um, how I started as a trainer and how I got to where I'm at now. And uh, William's somebody that I've trained online. We've assisted workshops together. Well, he, he's assisted me at workshops. He's just a really good dude and a smart coach. So uh, I figure I'll pick this one up. And the way I got into fitness is uh, I was always a Chevy kid and I was the kid who wore his shirt at the beach. That's not a sales thing. That's true. <clears throat> and, you know, I got into skateboarding after Back to the Future and I got really into it and through skateboarding you know I kind of lost weight and I, I grew and it also just more importantly I think it just gave me that like you know that was my introduction to heavy metal and punk rock music and hip-hop and it just kind of gave me the power to be like fuck you to like not really care so much about my appearance in some ways um you know having a mullet and a pretty bad acne will, will do that to you too um self-confidence not fully there so you rebel and my friend Domel and I got really into lifting um, and training at the local Bally's after high school. And we both got pretty jacked and shredded. And it was great. I was pretty in great shape through college. And then like, it just felt like every year in my professional life, I, I gained weight. And yet I was still going bouts of skateboarding and whatnot. And I, my body was just starting to feel like crap. So I had my daughter, my ex-wife and I, we had our daughter. And just my shoulder was killing me. I'd had surgery on it from a skateboarding thing. And I just felt like I was just fat. Like I was one of those guys that could go skate and keep up a pace at a park or a pool. But it wasn't necessarily fit. It, it, it's hard to explain that if, unless you've been there. And I also started in my 30s to start to you start to see people within your scene that you're like, I don't mean this is a judgment. It might sound judgy, but I'm like, do I want to be another overweight guy in cargo, camo cargo shorts and an oversized T-shirt? Everywhere I go, um, and I didn't want to be that. That's not how I saw myself um, growing up, and I just made a decision to be a strong dad. And with that, the uh, the local gym, I, I I made a block of time. So at the time, I would normally my daughter would wake up at around seven a.m. and I would leave for work at about eight thirty. So I knew that I needed a place that opened early because in visual effects at the time, like your schedule, you can go to work. You normally know when you're starting. You don't necessarily know when you're going to get out if things go haywire. So the local gym, Body Reserve, uh, no longer there. Um, You know, it was like a normal circuit training with some barbell stuff and a ton of treadmills and bikes. And uh, I signed up and I would six days a week, wake up at five, get to the gym when the doors open at 5.30 and train until seven, and then count. Now, the training thing, which is I was doing what Domel and I were doing in high school, was like using machines and doing like, you know, nine sets of three different arm exercises for each part of the arm and all that shit. I guess uh, bodybuilding splits without realizing that that's what I was doing. It's just what, that's what I thought strength training was. And then I started running and, you know, I was getting really great results. I was definitely getting stronger. I was getting bigger, I was getting leaner and felt great. But I was also starting to get some like You know, every now and then my shoulder would hurt, or you know, you get one of those like little tweaks in your shoulder blades and the scaps, and I didn't know what scaps were at the time, by the way, and and then I blew my knee out skateboarding uh, with my buddy Chase, and had to take a big break. So. The short term is, I got into fitness not to be lean, not to look better naked. It was simply to be a strong dad. I wanted to uh, be able to play with my kids into my older age. I wanted to be able to pick them up and carry them. And I wanted to live longer to be around them. Because you know when you have your kids in your 30s, like you start playing that like, oh well, if you know, I'll be this old when they graduate, maybe this old when they get married, if they get married and blah, blah, blah. So that was it. And we had Ben and I blew out my knee and uh, stopped running, obviously, even after I got, and then I got cleared for martial arts. So Domel and I actually got into kickbot. Well, he'd already been doing Muay Thai and I found Five Points Academy. And Five Points had a kettlebell program. So I think like it was maybe like a month or two after I started that I, started, I, I got into kettlebell training and I realized like how efficient it was and how simple it was. And the kettlebell really spoke to me like kind of like a skateboard in its simplicity. And I realized that I could have, a, I could work out <laughs> better more effectively in less time previously and as a dad now with two kids less time was huge it was just so important so um, I started lifting and getting into kettlebells and wanting to get good at that and got my first HKC cert and at this time I was pretty much over working in visual effects I was just ground out and depressed by it even though you know financially it was super rewarding and then um, started finding out about things. You know, I've said the story of Gavin Van Black, who's been on this show, you know, introduced me to the Ultimate Sandbag. And I had the income at the time to just take the courses that, of things that interest me. So my start basically was as a member of the gym. I took an HKC. I took a TRX uh, group course just because it was the only one in the neighborhood because I, I bought a, a cheap TRX uh, off a of Craigslist for 90 bucks but I didn't know what to do with it. And so those are my first two courses. And then I decided to challenge myself because like I used to run, I wanted to do a marathon, I blew out my knee. It was like doing a marathon makes no sense to me now, um, but maybe the RKC, let's see how good I could be. And this was before the split. So they were they wore the, the thing, the only thing I should say. Um, and it was on that path to the RKC that I started to realize like, you know, I would love to share what this has done for me and my family, even though this wasn't a financial thing at all. I knew that was going to be a hit, but just how it feels to move well and feel strong in your body. And basically I went to the owner of five points, one of the owners of five points, Steve Millis and I said, Hey, I've been thinking about, you know, training. What do you think? He said, pass your RKC and you can take a class. And that was really what happened. So, you know, I passed my RKC, uh, that was in September of 2010. And I think, a week or two later on a Monday, I think it was like a week week later on a Monday, I taught my first class. And then I decided to go like, hey, maybe I can really do this full time. And just started building in part time first. And then when I had no time left, basically from January, from like December to May, I had built up one on ones and classes, working six days a week, just locked, or seven days a week, actually, because I was doing stuff in Brooklyn at this time. And it was like something had to give. I either had to stop one because I was not seeing my family at all, the kids at all. So that's like a reverse thing, right? A lot of us get into trainers to help people. And then we are away from our families the whole time because our hours tend to suck. So anyway, I, became, I went full time. I had to build my business up. I was at five, and it was while well at five points. They were hosting a lot of stuff. So I got to assist. I got to meet people. Um, I went to a lot of courses. And then when my you know, finances you know, obviously plummeted, um, and slowly started to build back up. And then, uh, you know, my 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 marriage ended and that was a whole other thing. And then there was just a point, I guess, four years in where I felt like I just needed to change and I needed to be surrounded by, I was being deemed like a kettlebell person, and um, which I was proud of, but it was like, I was like, there's more to it than that because I've been with Josh Hankins program just as long as I have been with kettlebells. And I just wanted to be exposed to like a different, mindset, a different way people ran businesses, different structures. And through some people, uh, Jen Bullock, in particular, uh, they introduced me to Mark Fisher. I did a course there. I was really impressed not only by Mark, but um, the the ninjas, the ninja army and some of the trainers that I met. And then I started meeting more of the trainers here and there at other workshops and eventually took the job there. Um, The reason was, it was like, you know, they weren't as big as they are now. Like they weren't as Uh, widely known. I think, you know, there was a a set of people that knew that they were starting to crush it, but it wasn't out. Like in the kettlebell world, people would be like, "Does your gym really like have dildos in it? I was like, yes, they do. But it wasn't so much like, how do they run their business yet? It was more like, they were just like this silly outside thing in the city, but they were starting to grow. And what was cool about it was it was a completely different environment. Like suddenly I'm, I'm, you know, as opposed to being just within the the kettlebell community, um, I'm getting exposed to people with Boyle backgrounds and cressy backgrounds you know just different avenues of fitness different semi-private training which was something that you know I was not really familiar with um, using timers like pre-programmed classes as opposed to sort of making it up on the fly because you never know who's coming in uh, and just a, a whole different way of talking with one another so I was interested in that I was also like I thought I was going far enough away from five points and not to a martial arts gym that it, it didn't feel like any sort of competitive thing. Um, I didn't want that. And then with, while I was there, these leadership roles started to come up. So, you know, I, I assisted at a bunch of strong first events and a, a, a bunch of HKCs and RKCs and, you know, my name got out and the opportunity came to work with Josh and John Duquesne at Dragon Door as a, as a senior RKC, because I, I'd had an a ton of, a lot more experience assisting and helping out and hosting than, than a lot of other people had. Um, and I had a good reputation in that. So became a senior RKC and I'd already been a master instructor with Josh. And a lot of that just came from, you know, uh, pushing the system, showing up to assist, uh, helping out. I spoke at one of them, uh, you know, just being an advocate and and and, and staying loyal to the program and, and to Josh. So, Came, I, was, I was already a master instructor. it became a senior RKC. And I was already getting to know Tim Anderson and the crew at Original Strength. And because of my history, uh, more of assisting with a lot of our fellow friends, um, you know, was invited to be on the assistant team for that. And that led into an instructor role and then a lead instructor role. So in terms of how did I get on this journey, it was to be a strong dad. How did I get to the leadership roles? It was because like I found things that I believed in and instead of bouncing around, I just tried to get really good and help out now there's also a selfish thing on this like I at the time like now I can read a book and kind of I can put it together in my head at the time this is since it's my second career I needed to see things in repeat I needed to see it in person I needed to have somebody make personal adjustments to me for it to make sense so assisting was also a way of having other people make sure I was doing it right that I wasn't misunderstanding things and making sure I didn't start to fall off on my own um, training in a vacuum and that's really hard um, to stay sharp at. So that was part of it. And then just wanting to sort of pay it back as an assistant. And then I suddenly realized like, you know, more people, like, again, some of this online training started happening. So online training seems like a big thing within the last year. I've been doing it for off and on for five years now, six years now, but just not as a main push, just helping people out as needed. So it just started to get my name out. Like I was saying earlier, and it grew to that. Um, and just caring and trying to do a good job and knowing that I fucked up, like, a lot. Um, You know, so the leadership roles hit at MFF. MFF was just absolutely amazing. Um, You know, I ended up being part of the launch team at the second location, MFF Bowery, and uh, between a lot of travel for workshops and, you know, the hours of working at MFF, even though they did an amazing job, probably unfair to other staff member jobs of trying to manage my schedule, Um, and then admittedly, probably, but not, not a big part of this was like the rough start of, uh, just in terms of the construction and the cold and the dust and the dirt at Bowery, um, I needed to make more time for my family. I wasn't seeing the kids enough now as a single dad. Um, you know, I knew I wanted to marry Kim and get engaged and, uh, I knew the schedule wasn't going to work. And the only way that I felt I could take complete control of my schedule was to go out on my own. And you know, we're fortunate enough that I've oh, we've always had in this current apartment a, tra- a personal training space. Um, I was trying to build some stuff out in Brooklyn. Um, one gym closed, body reserve. I, I would go back there and, and teach a kettlebell class, try to build. I was, we were talking about renting space, and then they had to close. Another friend's gym closed. Uh, at my level, and I don't mean like a grand bah again, but like... Uh, for another facility to bring me in sort of as an independent to run a program. I did get a vibe that there's a little bit of a risk of me pulling clients, um, which would never be a thing that I was trying to do. Um, so, you know, I was just like, Hey, I'm going to keep it here. Um, let's keep it where we can control it, grow it from here, because going from five points to, uh, to MFF, I didn't try to pull anybody. A, A few people followed me. Um, But I I wasn't the guy in the background, although I think some people think I might've been that guy in the background. I wasn't the guy in the background like, hey, I'm going here, follow me here. Um, And at MFF, that certainly wasn't the case either. A couple of people followed me because they just had grown attached uh, and became really close friends. But um, I I was never looking to pull people out. Now with that, I meant that I never had my staple of clients to just go, hey, I'm here now, everyone follow. I had to rebuild every time. So that's the struggle at Fury Industries. And when I talk about finances is like, yeah, I don't have overhead, but it's like, you know, I don't have 40 of my previous clients here. Um, my location's completely different. I'm in South Brooklyn. I'm not in the city anymore. And, uh, you know, I'm building it. But what I'm building here is like my own amazing X universe of, you know, X men and women. Like, it's such a wonderful group of eclectic people. And then I get to travel and work with coaches, um, which I never expected. Because I'd say, you know, even in my membership and my online crew, like, I probably like... 40% of my clients or trainers. Um, and I'm just super grateful. So William, I hope that, that, that helps it out. It's just, if I have a skill, um, I think I have a way of connecting with people, which is really weird because I'm the shyest dude, um, in general, but I've learned to kind of battle that. Um, but it's connecting with people in a room and a lot of that comes from, I just assisted a lot and I heard a lot and I guess I really care about it. So if, you know, in terms of like, you know, taking a ton of courses, you know, there's a lot of stuff that I'd like to take, um, that I haven't a it's cause I have to look at my financial investment and coaches, I'll say this too, like make sure that like, we spend a, sh- a shit ton of money on education. I mean, start to think not that it all has to have a return of investment. You can take stuff for fun, but like also make sure you're not digging yourself a, a hole. You're not going to be able to get out of paying for education that might not actually impact your business or it'll impact your business in a very small way, maybe not in like a super beneficial way if that helps. So for me, I can honestly say without these leadership roles that hard style kettlebell training, DVRT ultimate sandbag use and uh you know original strength, they make up my training philosophy and things like my Indian club use and some of the you know TRX, they round it out. And, you know, I just, you know, I use barbells and dumbbells and stuff. If I have them, I don't have them in the apartment at Fury Industries. But like, you know, make sure that like, like it makes sense. And instead of trying to stay on top of things or to get us just necessarily associated with other people within this field, try to get really good at the things you take and show like a high level of mastery at that because you're still going to meet people. Um, I think like find signing up like Strength Faction, I guess, you know, if we name the other group that I'm involved in, that was because I was in a hole and I think Strength Faction helps people Dig themselves, veteran trainers dig themselves out of holes, whether it's financial, emotional, personal, whatever, um, and build new trainers up. I I really think more new trainers would benefit more going straight to strength faction than getting like a Nazem or an Ace or something. Um, And, you know, just stick with it if you love it. And if you're really doubting it, it's fine. You know, it's funny. Like I have a lot of friends that are business owners that are like, you know, I know it's tough. I mean, I don't, I can't say like, I don't want to sound like I, like I'm taking that lightly. Like I know it's fucking brutal. I've had enough friends close shop or struggle and had those talks. And you know, I do want to open a small shop at one day, but my expectations are also very different. I'm not looking for a huge shop. I know that's not going to make it any easier. Um, but like, you know, I have my expectations, but know that like owning a shop isn't easy. Doing online coaching is very much like having a shop, but less overhead, but you have to treat it like a brick and mortar. Like there's just a lot of work to be involved. And uh, you know, it's not lost on me. Uh, my birthday's coming up next week. And uh, you know, I'm no spring chicken, but I'm no dinosaur. So I'm just gonna keep charging at it because it's what makes me happy. Um, and I, I can see now this ripple effect that, you know, I've been through enough courses, I've trained enough people that like, I think I can say that I've helped a lot of people. And that's a pretty good way to go about it. Um, I don't know, I hope this made sense, folks. But uh, William, that is kinda how I got to here. Uh, This podcast has been super useful to me as well because it's um, allowed me to learn a bunch about myself and how I process. Uh, Always stay open to critical thinking and questioning the things that you think are important. You know, don't fall in love with your exercises, fall in love with results and certain exercises you might love might not be the right one. Um, Keeping an open mind. And I know I didn't have that all the time, but I think that's the full history of Fury Astro William. And uh, with that, next week, Mike Dijon, New York hardcore legend. Oh, it was really good. We got to catch up at the Jimmy G um, benefit show a couple of weeks ago. So I'm excited for that episode. And we got some other great episodes coming up as we round out the year. And thank you for listening. I hope you dug this one. That's the story of Fury. It's always weird when I don't have a guest because I feel weirder talking about myself. But, um, you know, watch Fargo. Watch Ozark. You can debate about Venom. Uh, New York Comic Con, I'm going to drink a lot of Airborne (laughs) before I go or find a cosplay where I can wear a gas mask. (laughs) <laughs> so I don't get the, the, the Comic-Con virus again. But uh, thanks for listening, everybody. And know that like you're a part of my process. Like This show has become part of the history of Fury because it really has reconnected we, me with some friends that um, I haven't spent enough time with or talked to in a long time. And it's actually made really deeper connections with people that I respected that I didn't know well enough. And it's been pretty mutual. And it's been very cool having... be able to reach back out outside of the podcast and just have that effect in my life. So, um, you know, do your thing and uh, live long, be strong, die mighty. The Coach Fury podcast is created, owned, and produced by Steve Coach Fury Holliner for Fury Industries, LLC. Music provided by the FTW. Visit the FTW.nyc for band, tour, music, and merch info. Artwork created by Glenn Gurrieta. Visit glengurrieta.com. That's G-L-E-N-N-U-R-I-E-T-A. Or follow him on Instagram at Glenn Voice over by Laura Palmer.